0: Well, it's Christmas time and we're thinking a lot about what we want. Maybe that's just me. Kids and adults hope for that special gift under the tree. We hope for that day to be filled with laughter and celebration and reunion. We desire that maybe just if we could get it for a day or maybe the weeks of the holiday season at least. Then, perhaps, even in only a moment, the problems, the worries, the troubles of life will fade. Perhaps you're past all that this Christmas. You remember having that kind of anticipation once around the season, but you've grown accustomed to desires going unmet. So you just don't really pay attention. You just wait for the season to pass. If you aren't thinking about what you want from Christmas, what about what you want from life? If you could wake up tomorrow and get everything that day that you wanted, what would you have at the end of that day that you didn't have when it started? We're all wanting something. Christmas or not. And our desires are more than just passing feelings. They actually have eternal significance. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Hosea. Hosea, one of the prophets in the Old Testament. We've been studying through intermittently. Uh, We've been through it now twice. We're now in this third installment. So we're turning to chapter 6 of Hosea. And you'll find that in the Bibles provided in the pews in front of you on page 754. Now we're going to endeavor to cover a big section of this book this morning. Going all the way from chapter 6 verse 4 to chapter 10 verse 15. And with that much content, there's no way we're going to be able to read all that. So I'm going to take a more thematic approach this morning. Trusting as God has helped me this week that I will still be true to his word. And what it's presenting to us. But just not able. Will not be able to read through it all in this time. I would encourage you. If you want more of his word. To go home and, and read it. Even this afternoon. Our passage this morning. Is going to present us. Two parties with competing desires. One wants one thing. And the other. Wants the opposite. Two parties. Locked in a desire dilemma. And if we're talking about typical human to human relationship here, we'd expect there may be no hope of resolution. We might think it's impossible to change what someone wants. So somebody is just not going to get what they want. But this is a unique relationship here in Hosea. There's a human side People who are following after their desires. But on the other side is God, who is the creator, who himself has a thing that he desires. And as we'll see, because God is in this mix, he's going to provide a a divine solution to this desire dilemma. And so that's going to be our outline this morning as we study this text from Hosea. First, we'll see a dilemma of desire. And then secondly, we'll see a divine solution. I pray God will help us in this to truly see what we want. To see what he wants. And that our desires would truly align with his. So point number one from this text, a desire dilemma. Now as I mentioned, this whole book is an appeal from God to the nation of Israel through his prophet Hosea. And the picture throughout, especially in the beginning, that we get is of a forbearing spouse, that's God, who is looking for any way possible to convince his unfaithful spouse, that's Israel, to return and be true to the relationship he's established. This, this kind of marriage that exists between God and his people. In previous passages, God has already employed words of indictment, measures of loving discipline, and promises of a wonderful life together should Israel return. And last time we were in Hosea, at the end of our passage in chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, there's a flicker of hope that Israel would listen and return to the Lord. It ends with chapter 6 verse 3. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Where will it go from here? Hosea's ministry actually to this nation stretched over a a period of decades. And I think there may have been a time gap between the prophecy uh, that ends in chapter 6 verse 3 And the prophecy that picks up in verse 4. It is as if God's appeal hung in the air over the years. While Israel did nothing. And then another word from God comes. A question. That indicates God's exasperation with his faithful people. Chapter 6 verse 4. What shall I do with you? O Ephraim. That's northern Israel. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Now God is moving on. A new declaration is coming. Look at verse 5. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as a light. If God's appeals went unheard, if His discipline bounced off their hard hearts, then His punishment is next. God says in verse 5 that He has already begun punishing Israel, yes, for their fickle love, and yes, for their sins, which He begins enumerating in verse 7, but also because as of yet, God desires for this relationship. His desires have not been met. Look at verse 6. For, or you could read, because. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is communicating to us in human language that he wants something. (laughs) Now, when we say that we want something, it might be because we don't have that thing. We desire because we feel lack. But that's not the way that God's wants work. God desires because of his love. Not his lack. His goal is to have everything work together in harmony. Humans in harmony with creation, creation in harmony with God, God in harmony with humanity. He wants his love, his order, his design to encompass all things. What does God want? Well, according to verse 6, God wants people to love him truly and to know him fully. Why? Well, as we learn in the rest of the Bible, this is the way of the harmonious and eternal life with God. Does God need that with us? No. Does he love it when he gives it to us and we enjoy it? Yes. We see the heart of God. For this outcome throughout this section. So just follow with me as I go. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. For you also, Judah, harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel. Look at verse 7, verse 13. Chapter 7, verse 13. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. He remembers a time ago in chapter 9 verse 10. The promising beginning of this relationship with his people. And he remembers it with fondness. Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers. This is God's heart. He wants all creation to sing with a unified voice. To love with a unifying love. For all to know his pure love for them. He wants this for all people everywhere. He wants this for you. God's expressed desire for you is that you have the best there is. Something that lasts forever. Something that cannot be taken away. Something that will only deepen and sweeten with time. Something that will make you better, fill you fuller, satisfy you greater than anything you could have conceived of outside of him. He wants you to have a loving relationship with him. That's what he desires. Again, not to meet his need but to give you what you can't have otherwise. Church, what he desires here that he talks about in verse 6, this is what he wants to be the environment of our church. This love and this knowledge as, as Jeff showed us from God's word last week. That the reality of what the Trinity experiences between Father, Son, and Spirit would be the reality of our relationship with God and with each other. Where when we think of church, we think a family I deeply love. A people that Christ deeply loves. You can get every item on your Christmas list this year and still not have this. This present only comes from God. And that present came on the day we celebrate as Christmas. When Christ was born. When the desire of the nations came to fill every longing heart. But with all these heartfelt expressions of God, we still hear a problem persists. An obstacle that lies in the way of God's desire being met. And that obstacle is sin. God's desires to bring about goodness get met with our desires to persist in what's doing what's bad. God calls us to love love us, and we run to rebel. This is the desire dilemma. God wants something we can't give him and won't give him. Something we don't want to give him in our natural selves. Whatever attempts we make on our own, we don't bring what God is looking for. He wants steadfast love from our hearts. We bring material gifts and completed religious rituals. He wants us to know him truly and deeply. And we assume if we just do more for him, that doing will be an acceptable substitute for relationship with him. You could read this whole passage today and write out every sin that God calls out of his people. And you would have a very, very long list. And as you read through that list, you would see popping up a common source for all this sin. The deepest part of the person, the heart, the place where desires form. Chapter 7, verse 10, we hear that Israel's heart is proud. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Chapter 7, verse 14, that their sincerity is fake. They do not cry to me from the heart. Chapter 10, verse 2, their heart is false. They never really wanted God as their king. They love the idea. They love the idea that they could be free of God and all authority. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. We have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? What was at the root of all Israel's sin? To love themselves and to trust in their own strength. Look at chapter 10, verse 13. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. So when God came to investigate Israel's life, he searched their hearts and there he found selfish desires. And the sin that came out, well, that was just the evidence of what they really wanted. I'm going to ask us all a question. And I invite us to genuinely and sincerely explore it now and then keep talking about it together. It's an easy question to ask. It's an easy question to give a rote answer to. But it is a hard question to know that you've given a true answer. One that really reflects your heart. Here's the question. What do you want? What do you want? Remember, as you answer that, getting the right answer on the outside doesn't make any difference. We are going for an honest representation of what is deep down because that is what God sees and cares about. Now, some of us will know the answer. And will be uncomfortable because we think we couldn't ever admit that out loud. So let me clear the way. When I look at some of my wants, it can be an ugly sight. I find I can often want to organize my life around what I want. There are days from the moment that I wake up, I'm wanting my day to revolve around me. For my comfort and my convenience to be my plan. In my selfishness, I want people to bend around me and my desires. I want relationships to be a one-way street, only coming my way. What do you want? Some of us don't really know what the honest answer is. But we're pretty sure when God says he desires steadfast love from us to him... That's either not what we want or at least not what we're currently giving. If you don't know what you want, here's how to get an answer. Look at how you live your life. When you wake up in the morning, what do you hope the day ahead looks like? And ask, why is it that I want that for my day? When you are most happy, what desire is being fulfilled? When you are most discouraged, what desire is being potentially unmet? And how you play in your life speaks to your desires, too. The things we do reflects what we desire. If you desire control, you will do and think in certain ways. If you desire love from others or praise, you will do or think in certain ways. Because of sin... We're all born with disordered desires. All of us. We don't want God. We want things he made. We don't want to love God in his life. We want to love self. Even if it means death that comes with it. That is the other side of the desire dilemma. God wants to get rid of our sin to make a relationship of faithful love with us. But we want to hold on to our sin and reject his offer of love. Church, this is one of the purposes God has for us in coming to this place every week to gather together. Through the God-given pattern of our worship services, singing... Praying, reading his word, hearing his word, seeing his power in baptism. Reminded of his power and his purpose in communion. God is using all these things to reorder our desires. Christian, have you ever come here on Sunday in one frame of mind or heart that was totally not in sync with God? And left with joy and peace and gladness because you know God through Jesus Christ. That's why God has us do this. To week after week position us toward him. That he is the point of our lives. That he is the center of what it means to be truly human. That his glory is the aim of our activity. And that his name is worthy to be heralded for the rest of our weeks and in all the world. Spirit-led, word-centered worship is what God wants because through it, God changes our wants. So having seen this desire dilemma between God and Israel, between us and God, what next? Is this just a, a cosmic gridlock between God and humanity? Well, if you know anything about God, You know, something has got to give. When mankind tries to put up walls against God's power and presence, those walls always fall under the infinite weight of God's majesty. And that's what happens in Hosea. As God presents the second part of our passage, a divine solution. You could subtitle this part, how God gets what he wants and changes our wants. And his solution is is multifaceted. We'll see three parts to his divine solution. The first part is that God punishes sinners who hold on to their sin. God punishes sinners who hold on to their sin. Reading through this section, you'll notice how explicit God is about what he's going to do as a response to what Israel has done. So start in chapter 7, verse 11, and I'm going to go through multiple passages Chapter 711, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Now look at chapter 8, verse 11 through 14. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they'd be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities. And it shall devour her strongholds. Chapter 9, verse 3. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt. And they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Verse 6. For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. nettle shall possess their precious things of silver. thorn shall be in their tents. Verse 9. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Verse 11. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Verse 15. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Verse 17. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Chapter 10, verse 7. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills fall on us. Chapter 10, verse 13. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall rise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Betharbal on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Remember, God made appeal after appeal to his unfaithful people to come back, leave their rebel ways, and return to his love. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. But they chose to prop up golden calves as gods, prop up their kings and armies as their trust, And let their desire for stuff, status, and sex be in the driver's seat. God is a good God. He desires to restore creation to order and beauty and people to perfection. That he acts to get rid of sin through punishment should not perplex us in view of his goodness. It should give us hope. That there is someone who can beat this insidious and perilous curse that hangs over all of us. God is a holy God. He is the one and only God. The true God. The high God. The one whose position is supreme and whose name is flawless and true. Given that he is the holy, the one and only, most high God. That he exercises justice against evil should not perplex us. It should lead us to honor and worship the one who is pure. What should perplex us is why we persist in our sin. Why do we want our sin so much... That some of us would rather die with it hidden in our hearts than throw it ourselves into God's purifying and consuming fire. Why do we, chapter 7, verse 9. Why do we choose something that destroys us? Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. Why, chapter 8, verse 6, for it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken pieces. Why do we give our best to things that aren't real? Chapter 10, verse 7, Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. Why do we trust in human authorities and powers when they obviously fail? Why? Why do we turn our back on the one, the only one who can heal and redeem us? That's perplexing. Here's why. Because that's the desire of our hearts as we come into this world. Do you see how broken we are? We want things that kill us. Friends, God has a desire to do away with our sin. The sin that destroys He can and he will take it and throw it to the bottomless ocean. He will remove it as far as the east is from the west. And when he does, it is gone from his mind. He says that he forgets it. But in order to forget sin, he must take care of sin. Before sin is buried, God must kill it. God will get rid of the sin in each human heart. He will either take it away. From you and give you life in his place. Or he will take your life away. In eternal death. I plead with you. This morning. Do not. Drown. Under the wave of God's judgment. Clinging to the dead weight. Of your sinful desires. Cry out to God. To punish your sin in Christ's. But to save you. Which is something God desires to do. The book of Hosea shows that is part of God's divine solution. The second part of his solution. God does punish sinners who hold on to their sin. But secondly, God saves sinners who let go of their sin. There's so much emphasis on God's punishment in this section that you might get the impression that that's what this whole book is about. It's just one long pronouncement of God's punishment. But the title of the book is actually God saves. He saves. That's what Hosea's Hebrew name means. This judgment from God has a part in the larger purpose of God's plan that he's working out. And here's the plan from Hosea chapter 1 verse 7. I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. And then again in chapter 2 verse 16 and in that day declares the Lord you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the balls from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on the day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. That's God's plan. And he's using punishment to fulfill it. Isaiah shows us Isaiah shows us, sorry, I've lost my place. I got excited. Here we are. God will not easily give up on you. He's not a God who the slightest thing sets him off. He's not thin-skinned like we are. He doesn't bail on his commitments at the first sign of difficulty or cost. Instead, he uses every means necessary to get sinners free from their slavery to sin. Thus far in Hosea, God has called out Israel for their sin. He has lovingly disciplined them in an effort to pry their hearts away from their unfaithfulness. And now he's taking more severe steps and all in the pursuit of saving them. Only those who die clutching their sin have no way of escape from God's eternal punishment. They, in a tragic sense, get what they want. But if you are alive today and you find that you may be under God's judgment in some way, know that God is both punishing sin and also showing you a way to be free. In not giving you what he's want what what you want, he is coaxing you to welcome what he wants for you. God might punish by letting you have your destructive desires to bring you to the place where you will finally look up and seek his restoration and healing after the fact. When God removes himself from us and we are living in darkness, his felt different distance is an invitation from him to come out of darkness and live in his light. If the things you've been hoping and trusting in to come through for you have failed, that in and of itself is a message from God to put your life in his unfailing hands. God will punish every sin, but every sinner can be saved. Only the one who dies without salvation from God cannot be saved. So how is it that God can save like this? Condemning sin, but not the one who did the sin. Aren't they one in the same? Well, apparently not. How encouraging, right? God gives This view of you as a person that he's made. You are a slave to sin. But you are not sin. You are someone he wants to love that he made. And your sin is something he wants you to leave. So it's only when we choose to identify with our sin that God's wrath turns on us. Which is how we're born. Now God could promise in Hosea that he would save his people from their sin. Because he knew that he was going to send someone else to save through judgment. His son, Jesus. Jesus' heart beat with the same desires as his father. I desire steadfast love. Knowledge of God. Jesus came wanting what God wants, as we read in Hebrews 10. And being the way God brings his love and knowledge into our hearts. God desired sacrifice, but not from sinful humans. Because that wouldn't do anything. Those sacrifices weren't effective. God wanted a sacrifice that would finish it all. That would put sin in the grave and it couldn't come out. God wanted a sacrifice that could get rid of sin and death. And so, as we will remember again around this most blessed celebration Christ has given us, we will remember that the Lamb of God came to take away the sins of the world. And that is exactly what he desired to come to do. The book of Hosea shows that God will use judgment as a way to save his people. He'll bring his fire to destroy the sin, but in Christ, the sinner will not be consumed. And this is the message of the gospel Jesus came to take the punishment of our sins on himself at the cross. Jesus died so that God could say to us, Your sins are forgiven. And Jesus was buried with our sins and raised without them so that God could say to you, Christian, your sins are forgotten. And while God once said to us in Hosea chapter 8, verse 13, I will remember their iniquity and I will punish their sins, He now says to us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Believe that. And you will be saved. Everyone in the sound of my voice. Including my own ears. Today. Repent of any sin. Repent of all sin. Do not hold it. Hate it. Do not hang on to something Jesus hung to free us from. Do not cling to it. Cast it off. Do not take it with us. But turn away from it. Because God has a divine solution. He will save sinners who let go of their sin. Thirdly, the third part of his divine solution is this. God gives new desires to the sinners he saves. Hosea shows that we need Jesus to provide the way of escape for us in order to rid us of our sin. Because like Israel, we will not leave it on our own. Israel has every reason, and so do you and I, to be done with sin. They don't need more reasons. And as you might have caught in one part, in chapter 8, verse 12, he says they don't need any more laws. Because it wouldn't matter. What they needed was someone outside of themselves to redeem them. That's Christ. Their problem was not that they could not... Their problem was that they could not stop wanting what destroyed them. There was no way that they could, on their own, respond to the invitation for renewal that God offered in chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. One of the things that the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ achieves in us is giving us new hearts, which means among other things, new desires, new wants Hebrews 10 verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. In other places, it says that we will, because of this transfer of hearts, know the Lord. So, Christian, do you, do you sit here and you investigate your wants and you say, I want this. I want what God came to bring me in my new heart. I, I want to love God and I want to know him. Praise God for that. And do you know that God put that desire in your heart? If you long for what is good and right and true in your life and I trust many of us do. If you long for that in other people's lives in the world for broken things to be mended and oppression to be cast off and wounds to be healed, God put that love in you and he gave you that desire in your new heart. Praise God. I have yet to find a Christian, Christian, no matter how plagued by doubt or assurance who will say, "I don't want Jesus." That's God's work, His Spirit, and your new heart. You know, believer, you know how the deepest longing of your soul is to be rid of sin and to be full of God? Do you know why you want that? Because God did what He wanted. He punished your sin on the cross, and He loved you and gave you a heart to want what He wants. So to invite God to work in our lives is to ask him to change what we want into what he wants. That's what God's after. He wants to align your desires with his desires. He wants you to know the absolute joy of living in steadfast love and knowing him. Now, once those desires are changed and that initial transfer of our heart work by the Holy Spirit and the working of the word of God, the power of Christ then pursues a path of working through those new desires that will lead to changed lives. Jesus bore your sins. God will change your wants to matches. He'll do it through the spirit. He'll do it through instruction. Even the instruction you're hearing right now. And hear regularly from this pulpit. Through discipline. Through suffering. He will give and he will take away. To pursue this path of change. So look again at chapter 10 verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fellow ground for it is the time to seek the Lord. That he may come and rain righteousness upon you. This kind of agricultural imagery is is all over Hosea. But notice the goal. The goal is to reap. To have steadfast love. To have and live according to what God wants. How does it come? We sow righteousness. How exactly do we do that? Do we put our own righteousness in our hearts and then live righteous lives by our own doing? No. We recognize that our hearts need to be prepared, hard clay broken up, ground tilled. So let's do that work in our hearts, brothers and sisters. Ask and keep asking. Do I want what God wants? Do I want steadfast love and the knowledge of God? Examine the the condition of the field of your heart. Turn that heart over and over, looking for every patch where we've stubbornly hardened in our own selfishness. Where we've been refusing Jesus' way of love for others, forgiveness of sin, grace shown, and unity achieved. Where we've been wanting our way above all else. Take a tiller to those things. Break up those clods and present your tilled heart to the Lord. Get to the place where, as best you can tell, you have pulled out every weed and every rock, every self-love and every sinful idol, and then look up to him. As Hosea invites, seek the Lord. Tell him, Lord, I want steadfast love to dominate my life. I want my relationship to be with you, my relationship with others. Lord, in all of it, I want to know you more. And the only way to reap your love is if you bring the reign of your righteousness into the field of my heart. And as we look up, we see our righteousness. Christ offered once and for all time as a sacrifice, sitting at the right hand of God, waiting until the time every sin, every enemy is punished. We see Christ, who by his single offering has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified by his power. From Christ the righteous, Christ the resurrected, Christ the ruler, comes the downpour rain of righteousness on our hearts. And he loves to give himself to us. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Perhaps what we need this Christmas isn't that new gift. Or that romantic relationship, that job promotion, or that recognition. Maybe what we need is Christ to rain his righteousness on our hearts. What a gift that would be. Church, pray for this. Pray for repentance among us that is willing to have our hearts tilled up. <laughs> Pray for distrust of our own righteousness to accomplish anything outside of Christ. Pray for Jesus to pour out himself through his spirit and his word on our hearts. And to grow his own desires in our hearts and in our church. And when Christ reigns on us, we will reap steadfast love, which is what we want. You cannot get to love without Christ. But with Christ, you get to live in his love. And when the harvest of love starts getting collected, we will know why God wanted that for us. Because with his love comes peace. With his love comes joy. With his love comes a unified church to the unified desire and determination to know God and make him known. So I started by asking what you want. We asked it again in the middle. And let me end by asking... Do we want what God wants? That's not just a question of passing curiosity. That's a question of eternal significance. God wants sinners to live in his love. God will punish every sin to bring a new world where sin is no more. Either Christ will take your punishment or you will. Do you want to die with your sin? Or do you want what God wants? Eternal life with Jesus Christ for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray you would fix our desires in alignment with yours. So that your steadfast love and knowledge of you would be the environment in which we live. That from it we would experience joy and contentment and peace that comes through your love. That we would enjoy it together as your people. God, even as you have just fed us from your word, as we turn to your table, feed us in faith. And the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us to punish our sins, but to bring us salvation. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.